Hi, you're listening to Science with Shweta podcast. Our guest today is Caitlin Cook. She is a fourth-year PhD student in molecular biology at Princeton University, USA. Her research is focused on investigating how human viruses manipulate our cells during infection. So, let's talk to Caitlin to know more about her science journey. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Shweta. Thanks so much for having me today. Thank I'm you really so glad I was on. sick earlier this week. So I'm glad that my cold didn't get in the way of being able to talk with you this morning or evening for you. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you. Actually, we have been planning this, but somehow it didn't work out. But finally, here we are. And a special yeah, thanks it's been a couple you. months. Yeah, and special thanks to you for joining because I know you're really uh, not well today, but I'm saying you made it. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Glad to talk. Yeah. So, uh, Caitlin, tell us more about yourself. What field of science are you in? So I would say that my field of science is really a combination of a couple of fields. Mm-hmm. So my work bridges both virology and cell biology. And then also the lab that I work in is a leading expert in mass spectrometry. Mm-hmm. So I, for example, like conferences that I go to are anywhere from just a virology conference to a conference entirely based on proteomic technologies. Um, and then I'm going to a cell biology conference later in the year which makes it really fun because I get to combine all these different ways of doing research and a lot of different questions that you can ask Mm -hmm. about human health and how human viruses really hijack your cells to infect you. Oh, that's great. I mean, you have all the areas combining uh, to study for your research. Yeah, it is. And it makes it also always fun to do because there's never a dull moment because I'm always trying something new, trying a new technique. thinking of new ways to approach mm-hmm. these questions that we're interested in asking. And it, and everyone in my lab that I work in, too, is bridging different fields. And so there's different people you can talk to about different things you're interested in. Um, if you need advice about specifically a virology aspect, I can go to one person, whereas if I needed advice about a certain organelle in the cell, mm-hmm. I can go to a different person. Right. So it's really a good environment to work in. So like... Uh... Like you said, uh, it's a multidisciplinary research. So uh, what got you interested in this field? So this is kind of a uh, like long-ish story, if you don't mind me going into it. No, go ahead. Um, great. Okay. So I actually, when I was a kid, always thought I wanted to be a historian or maybe like a fictional author. That mm-hmm. was always what I wanted to do. And mm-hmm. uh, my senior year of high school, actually, I took a biology course, an advanced biology course, and I loved it. And I was really surprised. Like, I've always liked nature, and I was always somebody who really liked hiking and stuff like that. But I was surprised by how much I liked the cellular aspect of it and, like, actually figuring out that our body is so complex. Um, And so then when I went to college, I ended up initially signing up for two majors. So I was studying both history and biology. And then... About my, my sophomore year, so my second year of college, I had already been working in the campus museum for mm-hmm. the history side of things to like kind of figure out what I wanted to do. And then when about halfway through, I was debating so if I really wanted to do both majors, but I thought, okay, I should try out research in a lab mm-hmm. because maybe I'll really like that. I already know I like doing research on the history side. And so I basically did the awkward thing where you just barge into a bunch of professors' offices and you're like, you like send an emails when you show up and you're like, hey, can you give me a chance to work for you for a while? Uh-huh. Um, and I ended up being accepted into the lab of this professor called Dr. Gia Volz at the University of Colorado. That's where I went to undergrad. Mm-hmm. And she is, turns out she's awesome. She is a very like creative thinker and her lab is kind of at the forefront of paving the way for this new thought in cell biology where we've known for some time that organelles are in cells, right? But now it turns out that the organelles are actually directly interacting Mm -hmm. and their interactions are what allow the cell to respond to dynamic processes such as like um, a change in metabolism or during development of an organism or even during virus infections. Mm -hmm. Uh, And literally, I just completely fell in love like immediately, which I think rarely happens. Like a lot of people try a bunch of different fields and then eventually find the one that they like. But I was just obsessed right away. And so I I ended up working there for three years. Mm -hmm. Um, I also got really lucky because the people were cool. Like 
gave me the perfect amount of independence so that I could like really spread my wings and figure out what I loved about science and how like what my actual character as a scientist was but they also gave me a really good amount of mentorship so they really showed me how to do all the techniques and ask the right questions and stuff like that um specifically the two grad students I worked with mm -hmm. their names were Melissa and Ashley I'm still like great friends with them so really all of it I just completely lucked out loved it and then when I went to grad school um, I knew I wanted to do something similar but I did not want to leave cell biology and then Again, I feel like I just got so lucky because during one of my interviews, I interacted with this professor that I'm now working in her lab, but we hit it off really well as like friends. And then also she, her lab had just gotten interested in using proteomics to characterize organelles and especially characterize them during virus infection. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to stay in that field of characterizing the spatial and the organelle-based spatial organization of a cell. Mm -hmm. during different biological perturbations and so that was like the perfect niche to fit into in her lab and I pitched some ideas to her and here I am today. I'm still, still loving it every day so it's worked out really well. Uh -huh. I, that's a pretty exciting journey there. I think like being from and yeah. wanting to be an historian to being a researcher at the end you were going to get into research I mean, you would be researching for all that if you were historian as well but I think you enjoyed this more. Yep, what? exactly. And I do sometimes still miss history and wonder what it would have been like if I'd stayed in mm -hmm. that field, but I'm very pleased with my choice so far. Yeah. So uh, can you tell us in brief about your current research work? Yeah, no problem. So I think you described it really well earlier when you said that I'm investigating the mechanisms that viruses use to just reorganize our cells, basically. Mm -hmm. So. To put it simply, um, if you picture a virus like herpes viruses, that's what I work on the most, which cause cold sores or like sexually transmitted diseases, um, turns out, fun fact, about 90% or more, depending on the area of the world, is always infected with at least one herpes virus. Because once they infect you, they stay with you forever. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no vaccine for this. So our lab is really interested in figuring out how they're so good at infecting humans. And... The, basically, the core of what I'm asking mm -hmm. is when a virus actually infects your body, it has to invade a cell, and then it has to reprogram the cell to produce more viruses. And so uh, in eukaryotic cells or human cells, your entire cell is highly organized mm -hmm. into compartments known as organelles. And so all the proteins, the lipids, the small molecules in your cell are tightly packaged into organelles. And the function and the composition and the shape, actually, of each of these organelles dictates the cell's function overall. So as a virus, when you invade this space that's highly organized, the virus also has to either take advantage of this highly organized space or disrupt it somehow, or usually a combination of both. And so uh, the viruses that I study, which are herpes simplex virus 1 and human cytomegalovirus, especially human cytomegalovirus, mm -hmm. they completely reorganize the cellular landscape when they're infecting. And so I want to know what are the basic mechanisms that the virus is taking advantage of or inducing with viral proteins that allow it to completely reorganize the cell to produce more viruses and then spread to new cells and then eventually to new hosts. So hopefully, if we can discover how these mechanisms work, mm -hmm. we can also develop ways to specifically perturb them and then that would lead to the development of new antiviral drugs that then would help a lot of people who are infected all the time with herpes. And an even cooler aspect is this actually isn't limited to just herpes viruses. I also am studying influenza, which is another good example of a virus that takes over the cell, but really all viruses take over the core mechanisms of cells. And so anything we discover would hopefully be broadly applicable to all human viruses. Yeah, that's right. True, because I think influenza virus infection is quite common everywhere, I think. And um, we still haven't been able to, you know, get a proper vaccine for that because, you know, they keep changing. Exactly. Yes, it's a huge problem. So, and usually the vaccines are based on trying to inhibit the virus from entering the cell. That's like the main thing we go for. Mm -hmm. So it would be nice if we had some way to, even if the virus enters the cell properly and it's evolved a new way to enter the cell every season, 
then we could still stop it at the core of when it's replicating its genome or when it's trying to assemble new viruses, things like that. Um, yeah, so, and that's always nice. I think maybe later we'll talk about it more, but being a scientist is great because your purpose is really to help people mm -hmm. yeah. at the core of that. And so anything, you know, it's like very fun, honestly, to be discovering new things. You're always geared towards helping others because all of your research is trying to benefit human health. Right. And if your research can help us discover something, then it's definitely a good thing to work on and you have to give as much as you can for that. And like you yep. said, uh, you're exactly. like, uh, working on uh, stopping it at the replication level, right? When the virus is replicating. So uh... Yeah, so I'm more on that end. More of actually, my work has kind of taken a direction more to the assembly of new viruses. So after they've replicated their genomes, and then they're trying to package new viral particles. That's kind of where my work ended up focusing on. Okay. So... Um, like we just actually published a paper in Cell Hosts and Microbes. Mm -hmm. back in October 2018, and that one, we weren't expecting it actually, but we ended up finding out that an organelle known as the peroxisome is essential for the, um, synthesizing a specific type of lipid mm -hmm. that is then incorporated into the viral envelope, and this is both in herpes viruses and in influenza actually, uh, and so that was kind of a cool discovery because now if somebody can figure out a way to toggle that lipid metabolism, Mm -hmm. then that would inhibit the assembly of both herpes viruses and influenza viruses and most likely other enveloped viruses as well. Right. And so is it possible that uh, if you are able to understand the replication cycle of these viruses to their molecular level and their mechanism, so like maybe you can discover or synthesize some synthetic uh, antiviral agent against them? Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. That would be the ultimate goal. So. Yeah, because like right now, the only drugs that are available for herpes viruses are a synthetic molecule that blocks the replication of the viral genome by inhibiting the protein, the polymerase that um, replicates the genome. Mm -hmm. But it's a very topical and like transient treatment because that won't stop a latent infection, for example, and it won't, it's not even fully successful. And it's also actually really toxic for the human cells because it's going to inhibit polymerases in your cells. Mm -hmm. So any other types of virus-specific drugs that we could discover or synthesize based on our discoveries would be great. Oh, that, that's a really interesting and amazing uh, research topic, you know, and you will discover something exciting and new every day. And it has a potential uh, application because if you're able to discover that, we can go on to the next stage, like you said, discovering ant antiviral agents. So, Yeah, exactly. That's great. So uh, having talked all this, Caitlin, I have a very typical question for you. I'm sure you must have been asked this many times and you must have answered it. But like, since we have someone who's working with viruses, are viruses living or non-living? <laughs> this is a classic question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so they are non-living for sure. Mm -hmm. um, except for the debate, I think, really is if... So a virus particle, the, my favorite allerg or, sorry, allegory that I have learned is if you consider a USB drive that you put into a computer and the USB drive has information on it, and then when you stick it in, but it's just sitting there, right, in the USB drive and it's not doing anything. But then if you stick it into a computer, you can suddenly access all that information. You can save it onto your computer. You can replicate it. You can send it via email to other people, et cetera. And so the USB drive would be the virus. And the virus can't do anything until it gets into a cell. And then the cell itself is what would replicate it and allow it to spread to other cells. Um, but really, a, a virus is just a biochemical particle that is highly organized and that has the potential energy to do a lot of things once it gets into a cell. But the cell itself is the living part. Um, though there is some debate of, like, you can maybe call a virus alive if while it's currently in the cell mm -hmm. as it's replicating, then maybe it could be alive. But the actual virus particle itself is definitely not alive. It's just a highly organized biochemical particle. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I really like that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a classic, like you said, classic question and a long going debate. So I just wanted to you know, ask it because you are working uh, on viruses. 
and i really like the analogy here yeah. because yeah we have been reading and learning but i really like this analogy which you gave it makes easier to understand yeah yeah exactly that was actually kind of a light bulb moment for me when a professor actually at princeton um said that he's also he's a classic biologist he's been in the field forever mm-hmm. his name's Lynn Enquist he writes the biology textbook that like all the colleges use to teach biology but uh he gave that analogy and i was like that makes perfect sense so that's my go to analogy also like is this is just a great analogy and all our listeners are going to remember it that way <laughs> from now on <laughs> yep <laughs> perfect <laughs> So like your research is really very interesting. So what is your favorite aspect of your research? Uh hmm, this is always a fun question too cuz I just seriously love what I do. Um I think two things. So mm-hmm. really I guess they could be packaged in one thing. So really the best part of research for me is the creativity. So you have the freedom and the flexibility to just innovate and discover. while you're doing your everyday work and so that's really kind of an umbrella thing like obviously my research we talked about it i clearly love the specifics of it but at the core like science is like art and i've always loved art loved history loved you know drawing things like that and even though this is working as much more serious things that directly impact us still when you're doing research it's really like art cuz you're kind of you're just creating and you're discovering and you're having to come up with new ways to ask questions and to pursue those questions and things like that and that's it never gets old it's always something new the people you work with are awesome and they're about to seem like that they're all creative as well mhm so it it just makes it fun and always lots of variety and very rewarding too when you can use your creativity to actually directly impact the lives of others yeah and like you said it earlier and right now also you mentioned that when you work with people who share the same uh, enthusiasm as as yours then i think you work more better and with great energy i think and that is really very important yes exactly and like i mean it's so obvious too when you see like not every lab has a great environment mm-hmm. but the productivity of people in labs that have a very collaborative and interesting and supportive environment is so different from people who are in an isolated environment um and i think also i lucked out being at princeton cuz it turns out that princeton in general has a very collaborative environment and all the labs mm-hmm. are even collaborating with other labs and you're kind of like friends with the labs down the hall and so that definitely at any institution mm-hmm. any any company whatever if you can foster a collaborative environment then your scientists are going to be more productive and they're going to be doing better okay. and then you come to enjoy your uh, research and your work every day it doesn't get some boring yeah. stuff for you exactly yep so um phd is definitely not easy but like what challenges did you face uh, when you started and how did you overcome that this is a good question also so yeah <laughs> phd's are not easy and there's definitely some days even though like i'm very passionate about it i love what i do there's days where i just want to lay in bed all day because i'm just exhausted emotionally and physically you <laughs> know it's just so hard but it's yeah so especially when i started it took a lot of adjustment mm-hmm. to just learn how to balance everything that you're supposed to do um and i think especially in the first year of your phd when you show up to a new school and you're trying to get used to living in this new place meeting new people adjusting to the environment but then they also require a lot of you right off the bat so i don't know how it is everywhere but at princeton the first year they want you to do the classes and the loads of reading and homework that come with them mm-hmm. you have to have lunch meetings with faculty you're required to do different seminars and journal clubs with visiting speakers where you have to be prepared for those you need to you don't need to but most people still join organizations volunteer with um and then on top of that you're also rotating in labs so you do a trial of three different labs and you really want to perform well and do good research because that will dictate what lab you actually join right you want to make a good impression on the professor mhm so i mean this days first year in princeton like you would work basically constantly like i think from like i would get up at like 7 and i would work constantly until at least 7 and then i'd probably have homework after that mm-hmm. and that was classes and everything else and uh, that really just like wears you down because it it gets hard to balance your life with that too so like 
you need to do the things that you love at the same time. And like for me, I actually, the first few months of grad school, I was very homesick because I moved to New Jersey from Colorado and I missed it a lot. And I also stopped going to the gym because I just like didn't have time to go to the gym. Really didn't have the energy to go to the gym. I didn't want to wake up earlier than I already was. And then I, I got very unhappy and I eventually realized that I think around, I would say like November of my first year. And I just had to kind of like stop. Like I was like, okay, I can't do all of these things perfectly. There's way too much to handle. No human can do this. <laughs> and, and I need to go back to the gym and do something fun and like actually relax in the evenings. Um, and so I basically just ended up picking my priorities. I was like, okay, I care the most about my rotations and labs. I don't care so much about class. I'm just going to take a hit. And so I stopped. Not that I'm giving, you know, don't just like give up on class. I didn't fully give up, <laughs> but I did stop trying quite as hard. And, but I really tried hard in my lab work mm -hmm. and I ended up being much happier because I really invested in a few things that I knew I would do well at. And that was rewarding because I made good impressions with professors and got multiple offers to join labs, but I didn't have the highest grade in the classes, mm -hmm. but that was fine because I was mentally more prepared to do the other things that I needed to do. And I was finally having a balanced life again, going back to the gym, um, but it takes, it's like weird when you pick priorities like that, it actually takes discipline to just not do something because you're in such a competitive environment. And so all my classmates are still training really hard in the classes um, and wanting to like excel at those. And I just had to decide like, you know what, no, like I'm going to take a hit here and not do as well. But it was worth it because I was mentally happier after that. So that was a big challenge. Mm-hmm. So like you said, I think it is very important to prioritize what you want to do. And then maybe you can figure out. Yes, yeah. yes definitely. And it's it definitely takes some practice. And I felt like I did that pretty well in college. But then coming to grad school and having a new environment really kind of tosses everything up. And you have to re-decide where your priorities are mm -hmm. and kind of re-get back into a groove. It's just like starting a new job or moving to a new place. Um, you just have to kind of get into a groove after a while. Yeah. And also, you just have to give some time to settle things down. Yes, definitely. Critical. Yeah. And I think you would too agree that I think for doing or pursuing PhD, what you first need is, I think, patience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, they just expect so much out of you and it's such a competitive environment. And everyone you're working with is so talented, which is a great thing, but it also is just an exhausting thing. <laughs> Yeah. So, once you get used to it, it gets better. Yeah. So, uh, like you are half uh, done with your PhD, I mean, past half? Yeah, I'm about halfway done. In the United States, the PhD, I, I would say, is mostly like five and a half years, but some people graduate earlier, some people graduate later, but I'm planning on doing like a full six years, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay, so like, uh, would you like to give some uh, tips or maybe advice to our listeners who want to pursue PhD? Yeah, I would love to. Um, so first of all, I would highly recommend it. If you are a creative person, if you like science, if you love discovering things, it's honestly one of the most rewarding jobs I can think of. It's just so flexible. You have so much freedom. Um, and you're, like I said earlier, like you have a purpose and it's a very fulfilling purpose because you're helping people with what you do every day. Um, Though I would say, actually, this is very based on what we just talked about, but I really think the biggest piece of advice I can give is that you need to pick your priorities. And also, along those lines, a well-rounded scientist is what makes a good scientist. So don't give up on the things that you love doing, on your other passions, your side hustles, your hobbies, the things that just make you happy, the small things. Um, because a good scientist can't be a good scientist if their mind is unhappy, because what we do is based on how we think, right? Yeah. And so if your mind is tired and it's not doing well, then you're not going to be good at doing your experiments. Mm -hmm. But you can pull, I don't know, some of my friends sometimes do like, and sometimes you have to, do like 12 to 16 hour days in the lab, multiple days in a row. Mm -hmm. But by the end of those days, you're not going to be able to even get your stuff done because your mind is just exhausted. And so always just choose to take the time off to go somewhere new, explore a new city, just hang out at home with your cats, play board games with friends, like whatever, 
mm-hmm. but always make sure you choose to do that. And like we talked about earlier, there's so much pressure in this environment that sometimes it's actually hard to even choose to do that, but you just have to do it because keeping your mind healthy and well-rested is what will really make you productive and smart. That's really the bottom line. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, the biggest piece of advice I can give. Mm-hmm. And it takes some learning to get used to that um, and to deny the pressures all around you. But even the best professors that I know take their weekends. They'll, they may send a few emails over the weekend or, like, if they have to write a grant, they'll be writing parts of the grant. But they will prioritize, like, I'm not going to work this weekend because they have to unwind as well. We're all human. We need that. I think this this is a really great piece of advice you've given you. So like uh, you have said that it's definitely, uh, it's, there's a lot of pressure. So um, what do you do when, you know, you, you're not in good mood or, you know, your experiments fail in lab. So we do feel low sometimes. So what gives you the strength to keep going and what is your get away from all this? So I think this is, yeah, this is definitely a very personal question because what makes me happy might not make other people happy. But um, my big thing is keeping variety in where I'm working. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'll go to lab to do my bench experiments and talk with my lab mates. And like we said, it's a great environment, so I really enjoy being there. Mm-hmm. But if I ever start to feel like I'm burning out or, like, I just am getting really antsy, then I will go to, like, a happy hour at a restaurant and get a beer and get a pizza and work on my data analysis and just kind of like because that feels like you're relaxing then right you're seeing a new environment I'm treating myself to something that I'm eating um, and that makes it feel a little bit better and then the other thing for me is I have to get exercise because if I don't then I feel like garbage Mm -hmm. so I plan every day like even if I need to go start an experiment in the morning then I'll go work for maybe like an hour and then I'll go to the gym and I make sure that I do that time uh every single day because that's what makes me happy and then beyond that I actually just went through a period where I did burn out like I fully burnt out Uh Um, I was teaching undergraduate courses it took a lot of time and then also I was writing a paper I wrote a grant I was doing too many things I was leading seminars and stuff at Princeton and it was too much and I overdid it and I actually needed to just like fully take off days and I didn't plan these vacation days and I felt kind of bad about it, but I just had to like, I literally just stayed at home and like melt, messed with my plants. I have a lot of plants, really like plants, um, and played with my cats and read a book. I read a, a fun book for the first time in months. <laughs> kind of relax. And my boss was very supportive of that. Mm-hmm. When I told her, she was like, yeah, you need a break, like just leave. And, but again, like we talked about earlier, it just honestly takes discipline to realize that and then to let yourself take the break. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, definitely the variety and then doing the like few things you really need. So for me, the gym is key. And then in the, also another thing that I do regularly, which I don't even think about all the time, but I take off evenings. So I'll work even when I get home, if I want to like cook dinner and I have to finish up a few things when I'm writing or something like that. I will, but I'll stop at like 8 p.m. And then I'll watch a TV show with my fiance mm-hmm. and I'll play some video games and I'll go to bed every night. And that always helps me kind of unwind also. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think, yeah, you really need to have some time for yourself and then, you know, you can continue with your research and all because you really need some time for yourself. Yeah, you really do. Yeah. Yep, A happy scientist is a good scientist. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. So uh, you mentioned that you had your paper out last October. So, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you that how important it is really to have a paper published when you're in your master's. Like, you know, is it um, if you have a a paper published while you're in your master's, does it help to get admitted for PhD? Like, is it one of the required criteria or it's okay if you don't have any paper published? Yeah, this is a good question. I get this question a lot when uh, Princeton does interview PhD from students that are interviewing. And honestly, I would say the answer is no. Mm-hmm. I think um, what people care about, about a lot more um, to interview for a PhD program is actually the personal interactions that you do when you're at the interview. So I didn't have any papers before I came to grad school. I had three years of experience, but none of them ended up getting a paper, mm-hmm. which is kind of sad. But that did not hurt me at all during the interview process. And I also know in my class at Princeton, I think 
maybe two people had papers okay. before coming mm-hmm. to the school. So I don't think it matters that much. And also, I mean, I didn't have a master's either because that's part of the PhD for schools in America. Um, but I think what they care about more is the way that you actually think, which you can portray mm-hmm. very well during an interview when you're actually discussing with other scientists, right? And then also uh, your kind of goals. So if you already have an idea, even though it could change, but if you have some idea of like the field of science you're interested in, or even the concepts you like thinking about, like if you like thinking about how um, molecules stochastically interact within cells or something like that, mm-hmm. that's what they really care about. And that you can hold a conversation with a very well-trained scientist. But as far as published papers go, I think it's great if you have them and that looks good, but I don't think it counts against you when you're applying. Well, thank you so much for answering this question because like you said, many people have these questions, you know, like, do you need a paper when you are applying for your PhD? And I think your answer will definitely help because yeah, we do get that most of the time because our peers, they have paper published. And so we do sometimes end up believing that we are not uh, selected because we don't have a paper or you know that's the general pressure among students I have seen here at least in India in master uh, during masters nobody has the paper published and so when we try to uh, apply maybe out of India or abroad somewhere or uh, here as well so that that's the pressure upon students you know like I don't have a paper so it, is it that the reason I'm getting rejected but I think your answer mm-hmm. is yeah, most yeah. Of that yeah definitely don't let that beat you up because yeah, I didn't know, I knew hardly anyone who had papers. And then, like, a master's program is, like, two years maximum. Mm-hmm. How long have you been in your program? Yeah, it's two years master's program. Yeah, as well. Two years, yeah. So, like, how would you get a paper done in two years? Yeah. <laughs> That's just, like, crazy, right? Like, yeah, I mean, it can't even be, It sometimes I'm sure people get lucky and they just came upon a gold mine of discoveries. But mm-hmm. most of the time, if, if you're publishing a paper in two years, that makes me a little concerned that your science was not quite as good because as we all know, science takes a lot of time and generally a lot of failure. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, like I, everyone goes through that, but like your whole, it's even joked about here. Um, but PhD students get most of their data done in the last like year and a half of their PhD. Mm -hmm. And that's because they failed for like literally four and a half years. And then suddenly everything comes together and they know what they're doing. And then they just whip out data like crazy. So yeah, if you're publishing a paper in two years in a master's degree, and like that's when you're getting trained anyways, and you're really kind of starting to figure out even who you are as a scientist, then it's impressive if you do it. But I would say that's not common, and it's not even necessary. But hopefully you learned how to think well, like a scientist in those two years. Yes. And that's what would really count. And investing in what you're doing at the time, and not having to worry about getting a line on your resume that's a publication. Right. And then when you finally do get a publication, it feels great. And like, and you know, you worked so hard on it and like, you're trying to become more confident in the ways that you approach science. And so that's awesome when you get to that point. But I, yeah, I don't know of any schools right now that make that a requirement. And I hope that they never do because it seems unreasonable. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure that's not a requirement anywhere because it's really difficult, as you said, in two years to publish a paper because you're just starting to figure out some subject which you've taken as your core major. And then you just can't get into that because here, at least in India, we have a like research project which spans about last six months of your master's. So how mm-hmm. can you just figure out your project and at the same time work on a publication? So that's definitely not possible. Yes, definitely not. And it also would select against students who are in less productive labs. Because sometimes, like, if you're working in a mouse lab or some other type of animal research lab, that type of research takes much longer than if you're working in a yeast lab or a lab with cell culture. Yeah. So it would also start to just select directly against those types of research, and that's also not productive for the scientific community as a whole. Yes. So, Caitlin, how did you get into science communication, and uh, why do you think it is important? This is a great question. <laughs> so... Um, this kind of goes back, well, it actually goes back very early. So kind of like we talked about earlier, how my initial goals, even as a kid, were not to be a scientist. And that stems from my family, really. Like, I, no, nobody in my family was in any field of science. My dad is an engineer, a mechanical engineer, so a little close. But um, I grew up really just enjoying books. And uh, my siblings also were kind of along the same path. And so when I finally ended up choosing science, 
mm-hmm. I really enjoyed talking to them about it because I want, you know, you want your family to support you and you want to get them excited about what you're excited about. And so that became kind of like an art of like describing what I was doing to my family who like had never taken a college level biology course, which those get a lot different from what you learn in high school. And so that's kind of how I would say I initially got into science communication. And then beyond that, I was still working in the museum in college with all the historians. And I had a really good relationship with them. And so when I started working in the lab too, I had to kind of take off some time in the museum. And so I would talk to them about what I was doing in the lab and they loved it. And it was actually really fun to watch that because they were like overall kind of an older bunch of people, but they were always so fascinated and curious by what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I would show them some microscopy images. And I still remember one specific conversation where they were just like mind blown by what I was showing them. They're like, what? Cells look like that? That's crazy. And I was like, I know, right? <laughs> it's so cool. Um, and then they also like would express to me actually that they were just encouraged to know that like someone they knew was a scientist and that like the money that the government was giving to scientists was being used by people like me, which I was very flattered by because I was like, well, I'm just, you know, a college student. I'm not super great at it yet. <laughs> but thank you anyways. Um, but it was, they were always expressing that like they just enjoyed that scientists were being relatable, like that they knew someone who's a scientist that they could talk to, who they obviously knew had other passions and hobbies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of, was like my, I would say my science communication venue for about three years while I was still in Colorado. And then when I moved to grad school, I was suddenly all in science all the time. I didn't work in museum and I wasn't doing history classes anymore. So I started volunteering with <laughs> one of our graduate outreach programs that specifically tries to cater scientists to adults in the New Jersey community. Mm-hmm. So we run a bunch of events where we do like a beer and wine tasting and we talk about the science behind brewing or we do a wine and cheese pairing and talk about the science with wine and cheese it turns out it's really easy to cater to adults if you involve alcohol somehow (laughs) so we do a lot of that Um, and we do like trivia nights where we have fun science questions Mm -hmm. Uh, and then to actually get to the Instagram side of it last July I believe Mm -hmm. at this conference I went to is the American Society of Virology conference we saw a talk from a professor who is very into uh, science communication, actually. He runs a virology uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. I am kind of forgetting the name of it right now, but I will tell you what it is later. Okay. Um, but <laughs> he's a professor at Columbia, mm-hmm. and he gave a talk at this to open this conference and was just sharing his passion for communicating science and all the platforms he uses, like Twitter and Instagram, and uh, this podcast, and he's been doing some TV shows. His name is Vincent Rocchianello. Okay. Uh, he actually was the first person to sequence the, I believe it was the polio virus genome back in like the 80s. Mm-hmm. It might have been the 70s. It was a while ago. But that was really inspiring to me because I, I love photography and I love traveling. And for some time I'd been using my Instagram just to like post cool pictures of where I'd been going. Mm-hmm. And I'd already had a pretty good community of other people who like to travel but they weren't scientists overall. And I was like, huh, like I could use this hobby to actually also teach other people about science. And so I started doing it about a year ago and it's been really fun. Uh, I enjoy because whenever I write a post, I learn a lot. So I'll literally just sit around and be like, oh, today I'm wondering about lips. And then I'll just go Google lips and then write a post about it. Mm. And I learned tons about it as well. And then I've also had some pretty good feedback from the Instagram community, I get people asking me questions from like all over the world about like uh, if they should get an HPV vaccine or what I think about like evolution, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's overall been very fulfilling. And I hope that I'm making at least some small difference with my thousand followers and that some people are learning science they normally wouldn't be exposed to. I, I really enjoy your small, small questions, which you post uh... You know, in your stories, you have those small uh, trivia questions which you answer them, and you also give an explanation. I think this definitely helps. And it's oh, good. I'm glad you like those. Those I are really fun. Like yeah, those are fun. Yeah. yeah, my friends will take those, like even in grad school, mm-hmm. and they always like joke with me. They're like, I'm so worried I'll get one wrong, and then you'll see that I got it wrong, and you'll think less of me. <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't care. Like, <laughs> but yeah. 
it's pretty funny. And we have like an ongoing, there's a couple of people in my uh, program that will like, after I post one, they'll come find me and be like, did you see I got 100% today? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, good job. <laughs> yeah, I like those two. And like, yeah, more people on Instagram now, I think, look at stories instead of posts. Yeah. So I enjoy doing those because I do try to give the explanation and then I'll suggest at the end, like, oh, you could go read my post if you want to read more, which I don't think most people do. But at least I got something out of it from the quizzes. And it's always fun to, like, test yourself on the quiz, too. Yeah. So, yeah. So what is the best part of the science communication? What do you enjoy about it? Hmm. The best part? So I think it's a really important thing to do because, like, even though I only am reaching, like, maybe, like, every post, I maybe get sometimes, like, 200 people that I know have read it. Mm -hmm. Um, and even that small amount I think is important because like we're in an environment right now, I would say in the world, definitely in the United States where like science denial is becoming a huge problem. And I think that's largely on scientists because I think scientists were so elusive and like unrelatable for so many years that the public kind of just forgot that they were there to actually help them and they don't trust them. And so, like, in the United States, science is becoming, like, a political platform now where people argue mm-hmm. about science like it was politics. Yeah. But really, science is an evidence-based fact that is trying to directly benefit people. And so it's really disappointing to see that and it's been very depressing overall. But I think that, like, if there were more scientists just being friends with people and being relatable and being like, hey, I don't just sit in the lab all day and make weird experiments. Like, the scientists portrayed on TV shows kill me. It's so funny. They're like <laughs> creepy people most of the time that just, like, run DNA tests and, like, have all these weird ideas. <laughs> like, okay. Like, I am kind of weird, but, like, not that weird. <laughs> I'm just, like, average type of weird. But uh, I think just, like, trying to portray that, like, hey, I'm someone who likes traveling and I like art. Mm-hmm. And I also do science and I'm like pretty good at it and I'm trying to help you when I do this. Right. And like, I really am excited about it and I want to share this with you. I think that makes a difference. And I think there's a lot of really good accounts out there now, like in the whole scientists who selfie movement, like that's great. That's showing that we're just like normal people that are doing a different type of job. And uh, that's, I would say is the most rewarding part is like the few times that I get people responding to me via like messages or comments that are like hey I really learned something from this post that's super cool Mm -hmm. thank you I'm like awesome like that's all I want I really want like people who aren't scientists to be fascinated by science I think science is amazing and it's how we all it's everything we see outside and it's how like I look at the world every day and so to be able to share that with other people is really important and really rewarding as well Mm -hmm. so I think Kaitlin you said it very right because um you know, uh, we have this image or people have this image about scientists that they are always uh, working in the lab. But I think uh, being there out on some social platform, I think it shows them, like you said, like we are normal people, we do normal things. And we also have some other things which we enjoy apart from working in the lab. And science is not that boring how it is portrayed and it's much more fun. Yes, exactly. And yeah, it's not a scary job. It's not something that's mm-hmm. like, we're not trying to be devious and like find ways to be better than everyone else or like to develop new, I don't know, weapons or whatever we're always portrayed doing in movies. <laughs> we're like doing things that directly impact people's everyday lives, like vaccines, like figuring out new ways to make cars faster, like whatever we're going to talk about. It's all stuff that we're trying to do to actually help others mm-hmm. and reminding people of that and then showing that we're like, like, I'm just a person who has two cats and lives in New Jersey and enjoys being outside and growing plants. <laughs> That's me. But I also work on herpes viruses, right? Yeah. I think it's super important. And I think there's been a really healthy push to start showing that stuff in the past, like, five years. And even big organizations like the NIH in the United States are starting to think this is more important. And to also select scientists more often who are passionate about these types of things and who are good advocates to the community and I think that's been a really good change overall in the climate right now oh yeah this is one thing and what is also important like in country like India I think it helps us to reach out to more people because like everyone is on Instagram and if you're using Mm -hmm. this as a platform then I think it makes uh it makes it easier for you to reach out to people and tell them like 
what exactly is research and why it is important because here at least yes. uh, in india many people don't go for research and uh, bsc there are various reasons for that mm-hmm. and one of which is people are mm-hmm. really not aware of what kind of hard work goes into it and why it is important so i think if we can do yeah. oh yeah a platform which they enjoy and which they are available on then i think it's super easy to make them understand and then eventually maybe people will not think it as a secondary or you know option because you didn't get into some other field and they'll start understanding it's important and maybe more people will you know start doing research getting into science communication i think that's the ultimate goal of every person who is out there on instagram and doing science communication yes that's such a good point i mean yeah there's problems like that like in india for sure but even in the united states like i feel like there's such a push for people to be like the like golden standard careers are basically being a medical doctor mm-hmm. or being a lawyer or being an engineer cuz and then that's like the last like 50 years that's what's been pushed um and like for sure people don't understand like my family I still have to remind them all the time like no I'm not still taking class yes I'm getting my PhD but I'm not taking class I'm doing research mm-hmm. and then they're like oh so are you on your summer break right now and I'm like no <laughs> I'm working I have a job <laughs> but and like it's just like people forget because it's not out there like you mm-hmm. always hear about what medical school would be like you never hear about what a PhD in research is like it's just kind of forgotten um, or just not talked about enough I think is really what it is yes. and it Yeah, so like you said, having people and something super accessible like Instagram just talking daily about what it's like and especially I think talking about the constant failures that happen in science because mm-hmm. when you when you see like a news story and they're reporting some paper that was published in like Nature, right? The way they write about it makes it seem like these scientists had like a huge stroke of luck and suddenly figured out a huge mystery and then they published it. Mm-hmm. But in reality, like we talked about earlier, the six years to get to and lots of trial and error before that. um and i think that is key for people to see because that goes back to like the perception of scientists just being kind of like reclusive thinkers that suddenly have like a eureka moment and then they've like put out a new opinion but it's like no this isn't an opinion this is like years of evidence based work that took us forever to get here and now we're publishing it and i think that's a really key part to share with people to show that all of our science is validated and was really hard work Mm-hmm. um all geared toward benefiting human health. Yes. Yeah. Right, definitely. So, uh Caitlin you like to tra- travel and you have been to number of places. So, which one's your favorite and would you like to share any memory where you have been, you know, like some fun or particular memory which you'd like to share with us? <laughs> This is a really hard question. <laughs> yes, I love traveling. I literally yeah. So, mm, I feel like different chapters of my life have been kind of characterized by different places that I've gone. So like as a kid, we I lived in like Nevada, California, Nevada and then Colorado and we did a lot of camping and hiking in Utah and Arizona. I like got the Grand Canyon at uh, all the national parks like Zion, Bryce Canyon, things like that. And I have such good memories of those places and now that I live on the other side of the country in the East Coast I like miss the desert so much and so I always think of those areas very fondly and would love to go back and climb and hike and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um but right now and I can tell a good story about this. Uh <laughs> I think my favorite place to visit currently is Germany. Um and a lot of that stems from my fiance who is fluent in German mm-hmm. and but he had never been until we went 2 years ago. And we went on like a backpacking trip with our two roommates. Mm-hmm. and he actually proposed to me in the middle of a lake in Germany like Königsee uh-huh. and so that is an excellent memory <laughs> it's awesome mm-hmm. it was like just like picture the most beautiful lake surrounded by mountains that you can mm-hmm. and we were in the middle of it on a rowboat and i was of course like very distracted trying to take pictures cuz it was just like stupidly beautiful and then i like wanted to jump in the water i was wearing my bathing suit <laughs> and then he proposed like on one knee in the boat and it was a beautiful moment and then i immediately wanted to go swimming and so he made me take off the ring like right away <laughs> like, okay yeah sure but <laughs> fair enough it's a very deep lake but uh and it was something like i'd known he was going to propose cuz of course we talked about it for like years mm-hmm. but that was just like such the perfect moment to do it in and then we've been to a lot of other parts of germany since and we keep going back but i we love budget traveling so whenever we go we just like stay in small airbnbs and just try to like see 
places without having much of a plan. So we'll just kind of like go around to wherever looks cool. Um, but yeah, and because that's like such a hard question because like I love Germany, but like I also love all the other places we've been. And I keep planning on going to um, Eastern Asia is like the next place I really want to go to. Haven't seen it yet, so I don't know if it's my favorite or not, right? <laughs> but yeah, love traveling. It's so it's so fun to go around the country or the world and just see different cultures and like the different wonders of nature wherever you are um, and the history. I just love it. Great. <laughs> That's really a special and beautiful memory. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I love telling that story. <laughs> There's some pictures on my Instagram of it, like yeah. a year ago. <laughs> you can go check it out. <laughs> coming to that, you have really uh, amazing pictures of the places you have been visiting. You know, and most of them are like mm, old architectural you. buildings, and I really like. So, of course, it shows that you like photography uh, as well. <laughs> thanks so much. That's like. Yeah, because I just enjoy traveling, right? But then I also just enjoy taking pictures and, like, finding, like, the perfect angle. Oh, secret, though, I take all my photos on my cell phone. Oh, <laughs> like, so I don't even own a camera. Okay. Isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah. I, like, keep thinking about getting one, but whenever I travel, I like to be, like, not held down, right? Like, and I like to be able to, like, go somewhere with, like, not even a purse. Like, I just want everything to be in my pocket so that I don't have to worry about it. And so if I had a camera, I'd have to, like, carry it and it would be expensive and I'd have to be worried if it got stolen but like yeah my cell phone's fine I'll just use that forever it's good enough like amazing pictures so like do you have a dream bucket shot or uh, like have you clicked one or you want to go to some place and you want to take a picture of that place like so I actually don't I definitely have a bucket list of like places I want to visit but I don't look up like picture locations I know that's like a big thing it's a huge thing actually with a lot of my um, Instagram community that's also travelers. Like there are specific sites that you go to take a photo, mm-hmm. which I think is almost kind of sad because like when I'm traveling, it's more like I want to just experience what happens. Mm-hmm. Like I don't need to, to be planned out. So like, no, I guess I don't, I look for the specific places. I just kind of like walk around and do stuff with my friends. Usually that I'm traveling with or like with Tim. And then like, if I find a good place to take a picture, I'll do it. But I also don't want to disrupt like the people who I'm traveling with, I don't want them to constantly be waiting for me to take pictures. So I kind of just try to like sneak them in when we're doing stuff. Yeah. yeah. But definitely bucket list of places to travel. Quite a few. Okay. <laughs> so um, if you'd like to have dinner with someone from the history, who would it be? Ooh. <laughs> Good question. Hmm. Man, I don't, well, <laughs> this one took me off guard. We were talking about traveling. Let me think about this for a while. Sure. <laughs> I always thought it would be fun to have dinner with one of the like great musicians, mm-hmm. like um, Mozart, especially because he always seems so eccentric. Like that would be kind of fun. Um, but also like thinkers, like especially I always think about how like the ancient Greeks, like they had such limited knowledge about the natural world, but they also were so good at discovering it. Mm-hmm. Like I think it was no, it wasn't Copernicus. There's a guy whose name starts with an A. Eratosthenes is with an E, actually. He actually measured the circumference of the world back in, like, 200 B.C. Mm-hmm. or before that. It might have been before that. But like, and it, he actually estimated it within 40 miles of what the actual circumference is, which is incredible. Oh, so, like, one of them cool. would be fun to have dinner with because, like, I would just be curious about how they actually process this information with, like, their current tools. Um. So also, so my specialty in history was British medieval history, mm-hmm. and by far the most fascinating person that we know of from that time, in my opinion, is Edward II. He's like the most hated British king of all time, and you know, that's probably who I would pick, actually. I would love to have dinner with him to see if he actually deserves to be hated, because like, history books <laughs> were not kind to him. That would actually be really fun, mm-hmm. because like... I mean, I, you assume, like, a government figure like that, like, he probably just had bad paparazzi. Like, people just didn't like him. But he could have also been crazy. So that would be interesting. Yeah, it would be really an interesting company to have on dinner. <laughs> and like you said, you can't yeah, really it out. <laughs> if you can hate him. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you could either come away being like, oh, he didn't deserve to be hated or, like, it would be five minutes into the dinner and you'd be like, whoa, <laughs> this guy's nuts. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, good question. So um, 
I know you like your cats, so um, you love them and you love animals. So what question would you like to ask to your cats? If you could ask them, you know, maybe three questions, what do you, do you like to ask? <laughs> I like if they could actually respond to me in English. <laughs> um, let's see. I would first ask my cat if she actually loves me because I'm convinced she does, but she's also a cat, so maybe she doesn't. <laughs> and I would hope that she would say yes. Um, and then I would ask them what the heck they're doing at 2 in the morning because, like, what do they do? I don't know. They're just up running around at, like, 2 a.m. every night. Yeah, those would be the two main questions I would ask them. Okay. Do you love me and what are you doing? <laughs> uh, yeah, my cats are adorable. They're, they're the best. It makes grad school so much better to have a cat. I actually got my cat, Copper, my first week of grad school. That was my plan all along. I, like, couldn't have a pet in college because of where I lived. So when I moved here, I got a pet-friendly apartment and then went and adopted a cat. <laughs> like, <laughs> and that was such a good idea because she's like, it's so comforting to have a pet. Like, they're just like always there and they do love you. I'm convinced she loves me. <laughs> and you can just like cuddle with them. And like when I'm working on my computer, she'll sit on my lap. And it's just like something like fun to distract yourself with at all times and to care for. Mm-hmm. So highly recommend if you go to a PhD program, get a cat. Good choice. Because dogs are a little too much work for a PhD, uh-huh. but cats, mm-hmm. they just hang out and they're there for you. Yeah. So you mentioned that you like to play uh, video games. So which games do you enjoy? <laughs> uh, so, okay, so this is kind of funny. Um, whenever I tell people this, they're like, nah. Uh, I'm actually on, I have been on a competitive gaming team. Mm-hmm. for this game called Heroes of the Storm, which is by Blizzard, the same company that makes World of Warcraft. Uh-huh. Um, it's kind of like a League of Legends team-based game, but I've been playing on this competitive team for almost two years, but I've been playing with the same guys for three years, a little over three years now. Um, and I never met them in person, which is hilarious, but we're like good friends, I would say. And like three of them, yeah, two of them have gotten married since I've known them. Mm-hmm. One of them is about to have a baby okay. like next mm-hmm. month. And then, like, I'm getting married. But, yeah. So I love that game, uh, both for the community and I just enjoy. I play Damage, and I love shooting people in video games. It's fun. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, the other games I like, I play all on the PC. So I went through The Witcher. I love that game. That game was so good. It was, like, reading a good book while playing a video game. Um, And the other one that I just started playing that I really enjoyed was Divinity 2. It's a good one. Do you play video games at all or no? Oh, yeah, I do. But haven't played them since, I don't, I don't remember. I had been out for my master's and I still live in a hostel. So I oh, haven't yeah. since long. <laughs> hmm. That's, it's a fun like hobby to have on the side of okay. uh, doing science. Yeah, because it's like accessible. If you have a computer, then you can do it at home and like, Actually, fun because I remember while we were in school, we used, during our summer vacations, we used to get that. You know, we used to have that time those bulky boxes uh, when we were young <laughs> to play. Oh, with nice! Yeah, yeah. Like, did you ever play like Super Mario Brothers? Yeah, it was my favorite. And yeah. Contra. <laughs> same. <laughs> Love that game. <laughs> Just like so good, such a classic game. Yeah. yeah. And it's game. really fun to play that game, you know, and I still enjoy playing that game. Mm-hmm, me too. It doesn't get old. <laughs> yeah, it never does. It was so fun talking to you, Caitlin. Is there anything else you would like to add? Um, You know, the, what I would like to add is, like, cheers to you for doing this. I think it's so cool that you interview so many people and just try to get their perspective on everything. Like, that's... It takes a lot of time, I'm sure, and like a lot of effort from your end, especially when you're so busy doing your master's degree. Mm-hmm. And I think that's it's just awesome that this is something that you love and you're trying to show other people what other scientists are like, which is great. Um, yeah. And then similarly, similarly to that, like like you, you even mentioned this earlier, all the other science communicators on Instagram, like they're all doing such cool, unique things from their perspective to really change the environment of like how people see scientists and every effort counts and it's all excellent and it's really exciting to be a part of a community like that. So yeah, thanks again for interviewing me because I really am, it's a pleasure to be a part of this. Thank you so much for joining us, Katie. It was so fun talking to you. I really enjoyed this conversation and I think 
uh, whatever tips you have shared with us today they are definitely going to help our listeners and plus you know you have this really fun side of you and you have so much passion to you really love to do this whatever you do you enjoy it and i think you're definitely a role model for our for our listeners and also you know you gave some yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah you definitely are and also you gave some really cool <laughs> tips you know for phd how they can proceed because you need someone who could you know help you out give you some guidance i think these will definitely help mm-hmm. Thank you so much. That means a lot to hear yeah. that. It was so fun, and also, like you know, we are just talking in the podcast also that uh, we have this image of scientists like they are always into their lab and they have no other life. But I think you are definitely a good example for them. Like you had, you do so much multiple things, and there's more to us other than science. And you are definitely a role model. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks it's again. Have a great time. evening. So guys if you have any questions you can reach out to Caitlin the links are available in the show notes she'll be happy to help also if you have any suggestions or need help you can reach out to us on any social media the links are available in our show notes thank you for listening science switch with the podcast <laughs>